to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 8th, 2023. I'm your reader, Sharon Faldudo, on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. And from the front page of today's Gazette, GOP revives push for private school tuition. Rural districts fear it would sap state aid for public schools. By Caleb McCullough, Gazette Lead Des Moines Bureau in Forest City. Darwin Lehman is no stranger to school consolidation. The superintendent of both the Central Springs and Forest City School Districts in Northern Iowa, he was there when the Woden Crystal Lake District was dissolved and absorbed into the Forest City District. Now he's worried that a measure championed by Governor Kim Reynolds and sure to be a top issue in the legislative session starting Monday may lead to more defunding and consolidation in the upcoming. In the upcoming session, Republican leaders will take another swing at passing a measure that would give some parents the option of using taxpayer dollars that would otherwise go to public schools to subsidize a private school education. Lehman said the legislation would take money from schools that are already struggling with lower than requested state funding. Reynolds' plan last year would have taken about $5,360 out of a public school for each student who took advantage of the program for use at a private or charter school. That plan would have made 10,000 scholarships available to families making up to 400% of the poverty line or for parents with children in individualized education plans, and only for students who were in public school the previous year or were starting kindergarten. The plan included a provision that distributed some of a student's per-pupil funding to rural schools to mitigate some of the negative effects. Proponents of the proposal, which they call school choice, say the policy would give parents more choice in their children's education and provide options for children who don't succeed in a public school. Opponents use the term vouchers and say the plan would further hamper already struggling schools and give public dollars to schools that do not have the same requirements and obligations as public schools. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican New Hartford, said in an interview he's optimistic that the House will have the votes to pass a school choice measure, which stalled in the chamber last year. This year, we'll see the chartering of a new education reform committee, which Grassley will chair and will look at a school choice proposal. I do have a level of optimism that the support will be there within the caucus, but I don't know what that looks like exactly today, he said. Grassley didn't outline any specifics as far as the scope of what the House Republicans will consider, but he said the Education Reform Committee will focus on a holistic approach to education. The proposal may be broader than what has been suggested in the past, he said. I see it more being around something that looks more like reform, he said, looking at public and private and how we can do better in education as a whole in Iowa. That's more of the concept of what I think will be in that committee. For the rural schools that Lehman oversees, losing just a few pupils funding could mean the difference between hiring a teacher in schools that are already losing enrollment and receiving less state funding than they say they need. In the long run, he said that poses the risk of more consolidation. Forest City serves several surrounding communities and has a little over 1,000 enrolled students in the current school year. How are you going to maintain your budget and your programs? With less money, you're going to look at larger class sizes potentially, loss of programs, whole grade sharing maybe, and there's some reorganizations, consolidations down the road, he said. And that would take time, but that's where that goes. Lehman noted private schools already have some state backing in the form of tax credits. Iowans can donate to school tuition organizations, which help subsidize private school tuition for low- and middle-income families, and receive 75% of the donation as a tax credit. Jason Blaser, a math teacher at Forest City and the president of the city's education association, said private schools shouldn't be getting public subsidization because they don't have the same requirements and obligations as public schools. 
If a kid who potentially could receive a voucher is on an IEP or needs some other sort of accommodations, a public school accepts that student with open arms, he said. A private school can say, sorry, we don't have qualified staff, or we choose not to allow you to come to our school building. The Forest City School District, like many rural schools, is also an economic engine and workforce development driver for the city, said Beth Bilyeu, the director of economic development for the city. After motorhome manufacturer Winnebago and 3M, the school is the city's largest employer. Bilyeu said a loss of funds could weaken some of the school's selling points, like career development centers and college class offerings. She said companies often use the school as a recruiting tool to bring people to the city. I think, just take a step back and look at the bigger picture, she said. We've all been the instigator or the recipient of unattended consequences, and there isn't much cushion. Imelda Vargos of Sioux, city, of Sioux Center hopes that a tuition assistance program can help her three daughters continue attending a private Christian school. While last year's proposal applied only to students currently in a public school, advocates are hoping lawmakers this year expand to more students, including those already enrolled in non-public schools. Vargas' oldest daughter attended a public preschool, but afterwards she enrolled her in Sioux Center Christian School for Pre-K, and all her children now attend the school. Tuition for three students to attend the school in the 2020-21 school year was $13,288. Vargas receives tuition assistance from the school and from the Northwest Iowa Christian School Tuition Organization. Still, after a recent divorce and change in her financial situation, Vargas said this year will be the last year her children can attend the school without state-funded assistance. If eligible for tuition assistance, Vargas said she won't be worried about if it is enough money or a lot of donations. It's always a worry, how much you qualify, how much you have to pay, so it will take a lot of worry away about that. House Republicans failed to get enough support to pass a voucher-style bill in the House last year when at least a dozen Republicans, many from rural areas, refused to support the measure. Many were concerned about the effect the policy would have had on schools in their area. Passing a similar measure this year was a major plank in Reynolds' 2022 re-election campaign. She took the rare measure of endorsing primary challengers to several fellow Republicans who opposed the bill in the November election, ultimately leading, leading to the loss of some incumbents. As the governor has stated numerous times, she will never give up on providing children with the best learning environment they deserve, Reynolds spokesperson Alex Murphy said in a statement in November. Parental choice in education is not a zero-sum game, and her focus continues to be on raising the quality of education in every Iowa school and for every single child. Responding to concerns about damages to rural schools, the House will look to pair school choice measures with allowing for more flexibility in how public schools can use their state-provided dollars, Grassley said. How can we try to give them some flexibility? Because we hear a lot back home is, we're not as worried about school choice if we can just have some flexibility in what we do, he said. Whatever proposal Republicans put forward, Democrats in both chambers have vowed to oppose it. Jennifer Comst, the Democratic House leader from Windsor Heights, will be the ranking member on the Education Reform Committee and said she will work to shine a spotlight on the Republican plan. I kind of like the fact that it's in its own committee because it gives us the opportunity to shine a light on this voucher scheme instead of trying to run it through another committee with all the other things that are going on, she said. Comst said, even with turnover in the House, she doesn't think House Republicans have the votes locked in to pass the measure. She says she'll still be working with Republican legislators to persuade them to vote against the measures. Senate Democratic leader Zach Walls of Coralville echoed those sentiments, and he said Senate Democrats would oppose the Republicans' proposals. We're going to stand up for parents and kids and teachers against the Republicans' radical attack on public education, Walls said. We know that they're already developing plans to try and force it through. We think it's a threat to rural schools in particular. We think it'll force more school consolidation, bigger class sizes, fewer learning opportunities for kids. 
Also from the front page, Iowa's large energy users push for electricity choice by Aaron Jordan of the Gazette. A coalition of Iowa's large energy users wants the option of buying electricity on the open market rather than from Mid-American Energy and Alliant Energy. A spokesman for the coalition, its members want to be anonymous, said allowing large energy users, such as tech companies, manufacturers, and agricultural processors, to shop around for electricity generation will help Iowa retain these firms and recruit new ones. We believe it will spur competition and improve decision-making and therefore improve energy costs for everyone, said R.G. Schwarm, executive director of the Iowa Economic Alliance and a lobbyist with Brown Winnick Law in Des Moines in an interview. The Alliance has been talking with Iowa lawmakers and staff at the Iowa Economic Development Authority and hopes legislation in the upcoming session will touch on electricity choice for large energy users, Schwarm said. Twenty states, including Iowa, require customers to buy their electricity and natural gas from utilities set for their geographic region. The other states allow some energy choice, either for electricity, natural gas, or both, according to the American Coalition of Competitive Energy Suppliers. Four states, California, Georgia, Oregon, and Virginia, have hybrid systems in which large companies, but not other customers, may buy energy generation on the open market. That's the system the Iowa Economic Alliance wants. The Gazette talked with people in each state to see how it works there. California started allowing all customers to buy electricity from alternative providers in 1996. Frank Lind, retired general counsel for the California Public Utilities Commission, remembers going to farmers markets in 1999 or 2000 and seeing small power companies trying to woo California homeowners. You could sign up with the individual seller or stay with your utility, he said. But in 2000 and 2001, Enron and other large energy suppliers created an artificial shortage of energy, which caused traders to sell power at prices that sometimes reached more than 20 times their normal value. Skyrocketing prices and multiple large-scale blackouts caused California to return to a regulated market for all electricity consumers except large energy users. California now has a direct access program, but only a limited number of commercial customers are allowed to enroll each year. It was like we did a big experiment, but we didn't experiment with a pilot project, Lynn said. Georgia has been allowing new businesses with consistent demand of 900 kilowatts or greater to select their electricity supplier since 1973. When a large energy user either is coming to Georgia for the first time, they have an option to engage a lot of different energy providers. They get to make a choice, said Dan Matisoff, an associate professor in the School of Public Policy at the Georgia Institute of Technology. While 900 kilowatts might have been a large energy user in the 1970s, now it's more like a mid-sized business, such as a grocery store. When Facebook decided to build a data center in Georgia in 2018, the company chose Walton Electric Membership Corporation, a consumer-owned utility, rather than Georgia Power, the larger investor-owned utility in the area. The decision was made in part because of Walton's commitment to solar energy, Walton said in a news release. When Georgia Trend interviewed investor-owned utilities and smaller co-ops in 2015 about giving large energy users electricity choice, the group said they thought it was an important tool for economic development. Iowa's large energy users want to shop around for electricity generation, which means instead of buying power from Alliant or Mid-American, they could choose a provider in another part of the state or the Midwest. The incumbent utilities would still provide transmission and distribution. One big question is how smaller customers like households would fare if large energy users left the investor-owned utilities. Schwarm said the proposal, first outlined in September, calls for companies to pay for costs associated with their leaving. We think it's very important for other customers, whether residential or small commercial, not to be impacted by this legislation. We would have the mechanism where those costs would be contested case proceedings before the Iowa Utilities Board. 
Lind from California says any state considering allowing energy choice for large customers should first do a pilot project with just a few companies. Regulators also should make sure there are enough unrelated wholesale electricity providers to ensure real competition. If somebody wants to sell that program in Iowa, look what happened in California, he said. Experience is a great teacher. Turning to the Iowa Today and the Week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state. Under the heading In the News, Brenna Bird takes AG's office. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Bird began her term by signing onto anti-Biden lawsuits and examining the Office Victim Services Division during her first day Tuesday. Byrd ousted Democrat Tom Miller in November's election, campaigning on a message of challenging President Joe Biden's administration in court and backing law enforcement. She signed on to lawsuits challenging Biden's student debt forgiveness plan, vaccine mandates, and a provision in the American Rescue Plan that bars states from using federal aid to cut taxes. Legislators eye property taxes. With the Iowa legislative session beginning Monday, a top priority for Iowa lawmakers will be reforming and lowering property taxes. Republican leaders have not made specific proposals, but they hope they can pass legislation that lowers Iowans' property tax burdens. Property taxes are the primary funding mechanism for local government's budgets and fund things like police, libraries, and parks. Democrats who are in the minority said they would be open to looking at property taxes, but they want to ensure county and local services remain well-funded. School choice proposal to surface. A system of directing public school tax dollars to tuition assistance for private schools will be a top issue in the upcoming legislative session as Republicans push to enact a policy that stalled in the House last year. While neither chamber leaders nor Governor Kim Reynolds have unveiled a specific plan, House Speaker Pat Grassley said he wants to take a holistic approach to funding for both public and private schools in the upcoming session. Democrats and many education leaders oppose the idea, saying it takes money out of already struggling public schools and would gut rural schools. Lawmakers to wait on abortion measures. Iowa Republicans plan to wait on the outcome of a court case before deciding on new abortion legislation, as the state Supreme Court weighs a push from Republican Governor Kim Reynolds to reinstate the so-called fetal heartbeat bill, which would ban abortions except in the earliest weeks of pregnancy. Legislators said they won't pass any bills before the Supreme Court decides on that case, which will set the precedent for the extent to which lawmakers can restrict abortion in Iowa. Under the heading, they said... I'm going to serve all Iowans, whether folks voted for me or not. I'm here to work for everybody and serve everybody. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd at her swearing-in ceremony. And we need to find that balance between ensuring the property taxes remain affordable, but also that we have public safety, that we have ambulances, we have roads, that our public schools have funding. Iowa House Speaker Jennifer Comst on property tax proposals. Under the heading Odds and Ends, Iowans in Congress back Kevin McCarthy, Iowa's incoming U.S. House delegation, consisting of four Republicans, all backed Republican Representative Kevin McCarthy of California during a disjointed nomination process for Speaker of the U.S. House. McCarthy, the previous minority leader, did not have enough votes on the first 13 votes for Speaker as of Friday afternoon, as a faction of conservative House Republicans refused to vote for him. Legislators to rethink higher ed. Iowa House Republicans are again floating a proposal that would see higher education funding tied to the number of students in in in-demand fields at Iowa's public universities. House Republicans passed a proposal last year that would give scholarships and incentives for students to stay and work in high-demand fields. And under the heading Water Cooler, COVID cases tick up. Iowa reported 2,246 new COVID-19 cases in the week ending Wednesday, a 5% increase from the previous week. The number of people hospitalized with the virus was 248, up from 242 the previous week. Roby Smith takes over as treasurer. 
Republican Iowa Treasurer Roby Smith, who assumed office this past week, said he wants to do a deep dive into the programs administered by the office and look for areas of improvement. Smith defeated 40-year incumbent Democrat Michael Fitzgerald in the November election. He said he wants to set up a fund that will allow Iowans to save money tax-free for a down payment on a home. Turning to the Insight page and the Gazette's editorial, Work Together, 2023 Legislative Session Can Bring Progress Beyond Contentious Issues. The 2023 Iowa Legislative Session opens on Monday, with Republicans in firm control of both the House and Senate. We hope this can be a year where focus isn't on extremist bills on either side, but one in which the legislature gavels in and gets things done for the majority of Iowans. That can be done by looking for ways to work together beyond the fire and brimstone legislation that has been pushed in other sessions. We need to work on things other than more tax relief and school vouchers, which are highly charged issues. We do believe there are other initiatives that could benefit Iowans and receive bipartisan support. One example is fully funding the state's children's mental health system created in 2019. Republicans and Democrats alike know resources are needed to meet demands for mental health services. Iowans have repeatedly said expanding access to mental health care should be a top state priority, and candidates in both parties have pledged to address the issue. With the state sitting on a $1.5 billion budget surplus, it seems like the right time to live up to those commitments. Legislation filed last year addressing cybersecurity protections for governmental entities and prohibiting the use of public funds to pay ransomware demands has taken on a sense of urgency. Multiple school districts, including Cedar Rapids and Lindmar, were hit by cyber attacks in 2022, leaving employees vulnerable to the theft of personal information. Many school districts and other governmental institutions, which lack the expertise to ward off attacks, are vulnerable. The state has an interest in preparing local governments for future attacks and provide training and resources to control the damage of potential public costs. One education proposal that could receive bipartisan support is being floated by University of Northern Iowa President Mark Nook. He'd like to see a student teachers in Iowa paid a stipend for their work. Student teaching is the original internship in higher ed. It was the first internship. It's always been an unpaid internship, and more and more people are recognizing that internships really should be paid positions at some level, Nook said last month, according to Radio Iowa. So how can we do that with student teachers? Can we raise some funds to offset the expenses students incur as student teachers? It's a good idea, especially considering rising student debt and the state's teacher shortage. Paying student teachers could be one more tool in the effort to persuade more Iowa students to pursue a career in education. Another idea we'd like to see gain traction at the State House is potential legislation requiring the state's large metropolitan counties to expand boards of supervisors to five members. Having seen Lynn County go from three supervisors to five and then back to three again, we believe the five-member board provides better representation. Republicans should be interested in the change, given that a five-member board provides a greater opportunity for rural representation in counties dominated by a large metro area. Bills addressing distracted driving and aiming tougher punishments for public employee theft also have merit. We also urge majority Republicans to choose openness, access, and cooperation when it comes to dealing with journalists covering the legislature. This past week, Governor Kim Reynolds and GOP legislative leaders broke with a 20-year tradition and declined invitations to a pre-session forum sponsored by the Iowa Capital Press Association. Reynolds hasn't held a formal news conference in several months, and reporters covering the Iowa Senate will once again be relegated to desks high above the Senate instead of returning to press row on the Senate floor, where reporters worked for decades. The losers in all of these steps to impede legislative coverage are Iowans, who rely on journalists to explain legislative actions and their implications. Efforts to deny media access denies Iowans access to vital information on legislation that affects their lives and their tax dollars. We have a guest column from Deborah Gallagher, who lives in Iowa City. 
Rodeos can, hum, can have harmful effects on kids. I recently became aware that a rodeo event billed as the Battle by the River, Wild House Productions, LLC, Sandbur Rodeo Productions, is scheduled to appear January 13th and 14th at the Extreme Arena in Coralville. The rodeo is portrayed as a family and kid-friendly event, with Saturdays designated as Kids Day, which features a pre-show expressly for kids. As a career educator, I want to convey my deep objection to the city of Coralville's support of this rodeo. While many people oppose the animal cruelty endemic to rodeos, and I am one of those people, I want to add a concern that is not often considered, namely rodeos' negative effect on the emotional and moral development of children and young people. Rodeos are not, as they are widely viewed, a form of good, clean fun. To the contrary, they are inherently cruel, primitive, and violent events. In the case of calf roping, the animals are jabbed with electric prods and tormented into a frenzy of panic in the holding chutes and then roped at top speeds. Many are injured, maimed, and even killed, especially in practice routines that take place before the public event. Bull riding events are no less brutal. The Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association's website reports that, in order to enhance the bull's performance, cattle prods are often used repeatedly to shock the bulls as they stand trapped in the bucking chute. Bucking straps and spurs can cause the bull to buck beyond his normal capacity and his legs or back may thus be broken. At these events, children are essentially being taught that animals don't have feelings or that even if they do, it doesn't matter. Treating them in ways that control, distress, or even harm them is not only perfectly acceptable but fun, and it is not only acceptable but applauded by adults. But children are more perceptive than adults often give them credit for being. Simultaneously, it does not escape their perception that rodeo animals are frightened, stressed, and in pain. It also does not escape their notice that these dominated animals are being used in ways that render them powerless for the purpose of entertainment. A large body of conclusive research confirms that when children participate in or watch adult-sanctioned cruelty to animals, an automatic process of desensitization occurs to protect them from the trauma of what they are witnessing. The ultimate effect is that children's emotional and moral development is blunted by repressing what would otherwise be a naturally evolving sense of empathy, compassion, and caring for others. This developmental impairment is why, since the 1970s, the Humane Society of the United States has expressed serious concerns about the psychologically damaging effects of rodeos on children. Likewise, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals has issued a policy statement opposing children's rodeo events for this reason. Studies have also consistently demonstrated that children and young people learn cruel and callous behavior from those around them, and that witnessing and participating in animal abuse often precedes cruel, callous, and even violent behavior toward their fellow humans. It is therefore not surprising that a number of school shooters had a history of cruelty to animals. We are living in an area where public violence is becoming disturbingly commonplace. Why would we support events such as rodeos to result in another generation of citizens being desensitized to the consequences of such behavior? And next, a guest column from Kurt Ulrich, whom a couple of letter writers wrote in to say they enjoyed Kurt Ulrich's column. Kurt Ulrich lives in rural Jackson County, and his book, The Iowa State Fair, is available from the University of Iowa Press. He writes, Preparing to Travel Without GPS. This morning, five Canada geese flew low over the house, forming an uneven V formation, all chatting at once, heading northwest. Knowing that out here there was no one within shouting distance, I did, in fact, shout, You're headed in the wrong direction! All quieted for a brief moment, and then continued on their way. We're into the sincere, quiet grayness of January, a time out here when cold winds from the north howl through the trees, hurtling noisily past the northwest corner of my house, whooshing, hissing, whistling, awakening wind chimes a friend made for me, and sometimes waking me in the night. A U.S. Department of State passport renewal application lies complete on my dining room table, awaiting action. All I need now is the obligatory mugshot, then I'm good to go. And go I shall, having long been an inveterate traveler. 
Not sure to where I'll next travel, but one day I know that I shall travel to a place known only to those who have gone before, a place requiring neither passport nor special papers, a place where all are welcomed and remembered. I shan't travel today or tomorrow, but soon enough, soon enough. Last week I stood in line at a grocery store. No, I don't know how to check myself out. And after the person in front of me concluded her transaction, a young cashier checker put her hands on her own back and arched it meaningfully. I'll bet you have a different reason for a backache than I, I said. Oh my, she said, smiling. I had a baby six months ago, and my back has hurt ever since. Asking how motherhood was going, she beamed and said, Oh, I love it. He's already trying to crawl. It was a brief, insignificant exchange of words between two strangers who will likely never see each other again, a moment that made me happy for a fellow traveler on this earth. God bless, child. Not learning how to check myself out of a grocery store is not indicative of my age, but rather my simple approach to things. On New Year's Eve, I paid for a meal for three others and me using a credit card. First time in my life I've used a credit card for food. Next thing you know, I'll be using a credit card for groceries and gasoline and perhaps parking meters or Starbucks. The mind reels. I don't care to know how to use my car's GPS, and I've enjoyed stopping in gas stations or chatting with postal people making deliveries to get directions. I have neither dishwasher nor cable television, no garage door opener, and I wear only analog wristwatches from the 1940s and 50s. A cellular telephone would make me available to others, thus I do not carry one. Only four people know my landline phone number, all women. I live in the woods for a reason. On a recent damp gray morning, I was traveling up my gravel road toward the two-lane on the ridge when an American bald eagle decided to be my escort, dropping to within yards of the hood of my car, safely ushering me out of the silence and aloneness to which I had become accustomed. Silence and aloneness comprise a specific destination, a place wherein most are not comfortable. The eagle couldn't know that I was headed toward the cacophony of civilized people, some known to me, most not, and she couldn't know that in the inherent messiness of our lives, her presence was both calming and profound. And turning to the community letters and the editorial cartoon from today, the editorial cartoon from Lisa Benson, a syndicated cartoonist distributed by Counterpoint Media. The cartoon shows an elephant wearing boxing trunks that say GOP, in a, lying in a boxing ring in a circle that says 118th Congress speaker vote. The elephant, who has a bruised black eye and bandages on his face, moans, what does the other guy look like? And the referee, who is standing next to sign, saying round one, three, four, and five, says to the elephant, what other guy? The first letter is from John Carver of Decorah. Weak gun laws akin to Old West. Another gun headline in the news. Half of the U.S. goes permitless on guns. Fear of violence grows. Gun sales skyrocket and manufacturers love it, of course. It's hard to understand the mentality of buyers since most Americans already own maybe one, two, or more guns. We have slowly digressed the lawlessness of the Old West. Shoot them up at the old corral and keep the morticians busy. Thank goodness history tells us this period ended up on Boot Hill as new gun laws were enacted. That work has now been reversed and progress is once more stymied. It appears we'll have to put up with the absence of guns sanity until the Old West is once again put to rest. John Carver of Decorah. Next, Andrea and David Novak of Cedar Rapids write, In cold, city takes care of neighborhood. Flashing lights tinge our bedroom mini blinds. Clock by the bed says 2.30 a.m. Peering out the window, I see two large city trucks are parked along Ford Avenue. Muffled voices. Workers in green reflective vests walk through our yard. Our toilet flushes and doesn't refill. A quick glance to the street reveals water and wet ice along the curb. More trucks. A backhoe. What sounds like a jackhammer. A load of gravel. Work continues through the below-zero windchill pre-dawn. A hole large enough to lose a Volkswagen Beetle and covers a big water pipe. By 10 a.m., the water line is repaired. Gravel begins to fill the hole. 
The nearby hydrant is flushed. Traffic cones cordon off the excavated area. We wash our breakfast dishes. On a morning when the priority was catching up on trash recycling pickup and snow left behind by the blizzard of 2022, the city took care of taking care of our neighborhood. Thank you. Andrea and David Novak of Cedar Rapids. The next letter is from Dave Ganson of Marion, who writes clarifying number of extremist murders. In Steve Corbin's column on December 29th, he cited a report from the Anti-Defamation League stating right-wing extremists were responsible for 76% of all American domestic-related murders in the last decade. The report actually states that since 2010, right-wing extremists have been responsible for 330 deaths, or 76% of all domestic extremist-related murders within that time. An example is the Walmart shooting in El Paso. Leaving out the word extremist from extremist-related could make people believe the 76% included all murders. There were 62,722 single-victim, single-offender murders in the years 2010 to 2019, according to FBI statistics. Domestic extremist-related murders, although scary and sensational, are a tiny fraction of this number, about 0.7%. We should assume Mr. Corman did not intend to mislead the readers and would be happy to have this clarified. Dave Ganson of Marion. And the final letter is from Deborah Miller of Ankeny. Donald Trump doesn't keep his promises. I didn't even have to read the whole December 28th Cal Thomas diatribe. As part of one sentence jumped out at me, Joe Biden should pardon Donald Trump in exchange for Trump's promise not to seek political office. Trump's promise? Would that be like the one where he promised to release his tax returns? Trump hasn't kept a promise in years. Why would he start now? Deborah Miller of Ankeny. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 8th, 2023 on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I am your reader, Sharon Faldudo, and we turn to today's obituaries. Linda Lou Hughes, age 86, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully December 28th at Winslow House Care Center in Marion. Friends and family will be invited for graveside services at Oliphant Cemetery at a later time in the spring. Brosh Chapel is caring for Linda and her arrangements. She worked many different jobs throughout her life, including Warehouser, Yonkers Shoe Department, and Hy-Vee on Oakland Road. Linda was an incredible and adventurous woman who rode Harley motorcycles and dirt bikes. Rita May Urbanek, age 97, of Marion, passed away on Wednesday, January 4th, at her home. In agreement with her wishes, cremation has taken place. A funeral liturgy outside of Mass will be held at 1.30 p.m. Thursday, January 12th at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. Deacon Jeff Volker will officiate. Inurment will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Following the inurment, a celebration of Rita's life will begin at 3 p.m. Thursday at the American Legion Post 298, located at 625 31st Street in Marion. Rita was formerly employed at Rockwell Collins in Cedar Rapids for 28 years. She loved cooking, dancing, crafting, playing cards, and traveling. Rita was a stubborn woman, a wonderful mother, and a loving grandmother. Delbert Earl Harford Sr. of Cedar Rapids peacefully passed away at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha on January 4th after a short illness. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Cedar Rapids assisted the family. Delbert worked for over 34 years at National Oats Ralston Foods until his retirement in 2006. After retirement, he also spent time working alongside his son-in-law, Brent, from 2012 to 2018. Never known for being a great conversationalist, but rather a man who could sit silently for hours watching his wrestling matches, old westerns, or his favorite sports teams, the Cubs, Bears, and Hawkeyes. One of the best sports moments of his life was watching his Cubbies finally win the 2016 World Series. 
Sean M. Hessen, age 42, of Marion, passed away unexpectedly on December 31st, surrounded by his loving family. Sean was employed by Paul Revere's Pizza in Cedar Rapids. He loved reading and vacations. A celebration of life will be this summer. Dennis Lee Woolrab, age 77, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on December 29th. Mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 11th, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church, Cedar Rapids. Visitation will be from 4 to 8 p.m. Tuesday, January 10th, at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services in Cedar Rapids, starting with the Rosary at 3.30 p.m. An additional visitation will take place from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. at the church on Wednesday preceding Mass. A luncheon will be held after Mass, followed by the burial with military honors at St. John's Cemetery in Lisbon. Dennis was a proud member of Iron Workers Local 89 for 55 years, serving 25 years on both the Executive Board and Examining Board and nine years as North Central District Council Officer. Known by many as the legend for his work ethic, leadership, and service, Dennis was equally known for his kind, generous, and compassionate nature, helping many financially or by lending a helping hand by mentoring up-and-coming iron workers. Dennis loved his breakfast and veteran group buddies and looked forward to his iron workers' retirement luncheons and Cedar Rapids Colonels games. Dennis was a proud United States Army veteran, serving two tours in Vietnam, receiving the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and Infantry Combat Badge as a door gunner. He was a member of American Legion Cyclops Post 109, Lisbon VFW Post 788 Cedar Rapids, and a longtime member of St. Patrick's Catholic Church. Christopher David Rohr, known as Chris, age 60 of Cedar Rapids, formerly of Anamosa and Decorah, passed away peacefully surrounded by family on December 21st at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. In agreement with his wishes, cremation has taken place. A celebration of Chris' life will be held from noon to 4 p.m. on Saturday, January 14th, at the Decorah VFW Post 163, located at 104 State Street in Decorah. An Irma will follow at St. Benedict's Catholic Cemetery in Decorah. Jean Tinker of Cedar Rapids passed away on January 2nd after a sudden illness. She passed peacefully with her loving husband and daughters close by her side. Jean's greatest love was her family. She dedicated her life to being a mother, supporting Jim's career in healthcare. Perhaps her pinnacle achievement among so many was being the greatest grandmother or guard to her grandchildren. She inspired all of them with her passion for reading, learning, gardening, and the arts, delivering overall kindness, compassion, and humor, and instilling a thirst for pursuing the adventures of life. Jean's love of travel was strong. She and Jim traveled extensively, enjoying wonderful escapes to Europe, Russia, Australia, New Zealand, South America, Mexico, and locations across North America. Jean's love for the humanities, art history, culinary delights, and the many wonders of the world enriched their lives. There will be private funeral service to celebrate Jean's life at the Tinker Family Cemetery in Butler, Pennsylvania. The Reverend Dr. Joe Milton Jones, age 83, of Marion, passed away on December 14th at his home in Marion. Memorial service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 14th at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, with a Nerman to follow at Oakshade Cemetery in Marion. The Reverend Jones served several churches across the country, remaining close with many families of parishes he served. Joe was involved in many organizations such as the Masonic Lodge, Volunteer Firefighting, Lions and Kiwanis Club, and served as chaplain for various organizations. He enjoyed playing bridge and logic and jigsaw puzzles. Many of his jigsaws were framed and given to family members and friends. Joe was an avid sports fan, especially the Pittsburgh Steelers. Laverne V. Robluski, Robluski, age 95, of Olathe, Kansas, died January 2nd at the Olathe Medical Center. 
private burial will be at Leavenworth National Cemetery in Leavenworth, Kansas. Laverne was employed by Alice Chalmers, Highway Equipment Company, Gaddis Manufacturing, Wendler Krauss Manufacturing, Wendler Equipment, J.I. Case Industrial Division, and Krauss Manufacturing. In 1964, he started Sherlin Equipment Inc. and Sherlin Construction Inc. He headed those companies until his retirement in 1983. Laverne was a lifetime member of the Masons, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, and the Elks. We regretfully announced the passing of Mary Lou Vernon of Anamosa on January 4th, surrounded by her family. She passed away peacefully after a sudden illness. Mary Lou had a lifelong passion for gardening, tennis, travel, cooking, reading, and all things creative. She fulfilled another calling when returning to college at age 50 to obtain her RN nursing degree. A celebration of her life will be held at a later date. Pamela Ann Hammers, born Pamela Ann Pisney, age 62, of Cedar Falls, passed away January 4th from complications from cancer. If you knew Pam, you can imagine the fight she waged, and you'd almost pity the cancer. Pam spent the majority of her life in the Cedar Falls area. Earning certifications in Reiki, she owned and operated Hammers Shiatsu Clinic. Pam was also an accomplished martial artist, earning her sixth dan in traditional Nahaste and sharing her knowledge with numerous students. A celebration of life service will be at 11 a.m. Thursday, January 10th at Dahl Van Hove's Scoof Funeral Home in Cedar Falls. Visitation will be from 4 to 8 p.m. Monday, January 9th at the Funeral Home, resuming at 10 a.m. Tuesday at the Funeral Home until the time of service. There will be a private family inurement at Oak Hill Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Craig Nolan Untit, age 80, of Willow Springs, Illinois, formerly of Walford, Iowa, passed away Thursday, December 29th after a five-year battle with Alzheimer's. Craig retired from Quaker Oats in Cedar Rapids after 37 and a half years. He retired in Branson, Missouri, where he owned and managed LSU condos for 25 years. Craig was an avid fan of University of Iowa Hawkeyes football, loved traveling, and wintering in Arizona. A celebration of life will be held in April 2023 in Iowa City for family and friends. Turning to the sports page, Clark and Hawkeyes win in the Chrysler Center on national TV in Iowa women's basketball the first-ever women's basketball game on Fox by Jeff Linder of the Gazette in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Caitlin Clark's last trip to Chrysler Center resulted in 46 points, multiple logo three-pointers, and a slew of national attention that followed it. This trip was even better. Clark scored 28 points, and 16th-ranked Iowa ended a five-game Chrysler Hex 94-85 in a Big Ten women's basketball game Saturday afternoon. The game was played in front of 10,731 fans, the fourth-largest home crowd in Michigan history, and a national audience on Fox Television. It was the first women's game televised on Fox. What they saw was a very strong final 27 minutes by the Hawkeyes, 12-4 overall and 4-1 and in the Big Ten, who stormed back after trailing 28-18 early in the second quarter. Monica Cisnano's three-point play triggered a 13-3 Iowa run to tie the game at 31. That run included a driving basket by Molly Davis, who hurt a hip on the play. She returned shortly thereafter. McKenna Warnock's three-pointer gave Iowa its first lead at 38-37 with 131 left in the half. Clark hit a long three just before the half to put the Hawkeyes up 41-39. Iowa broke a 41-41 tie with six straight points, four from Kate Martin, and broke it open with a 10-0 run to extend the margin to 72-61. The closest Michigan got from that point was 90-85 on Leah Brown's three-pointer with 32 left. Sinano added 19 points on 7 of 9 shooting, Warnock scored 14 points, Martin 10, all in the third quarter. Freshman Hannah Stulke scored 9 off the bench, Davis 8. Brown paced Michigan with 20 points. Emily Kaiser added 19. Leila Filia scored 16, including 14 points in the first quarter. 
Iowa moved into a second-place tie with Illinois and Maryland, one back behind Ohio State. The Hawkeyes play a pair of home games this week against Northwestern at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday and Penn State at 11.30 a.m. on Saturday. My class writes, Duggins football kryptonite, C.R. Xavier. Saints beat Duggins Lewis Central team in 2018 state semifinal, but now they're rooting for the TCU quarterback in the CFP title game. Maybe Georgia should have called Cedar Rapids Xavier football defensive coordinator Jim O'Connell for tips on how to slow down TCU quarterback Max Duggan. O'Connell laughed when he heard that suggestion. However, he and his 2018 Saints defensive players can say that they did what few college teams have done this season, which is slow Duggan down. Xavier beat Duggan's Council Bluffs Lewis Central team in a state class 3A playoff battle of unbeatens in the semifinals, 37-13. It was the last high school game of Duggan's career. The Saints defeated Western Dubuque the following week to win the 3A title. Monday night, Duggan will quarterback underdog TCU against the Bulldogs of Georgia in a different championship game, that of the college football playoff. He'll have people cheering him who once were his high school opponents. I want him to win, O'Connell said. I'm a fan of his now for sure, said Pat McGinn, who was a defensive back on that Xavier team. I'm definitely rooting for him. Duggan wasn't some sleeper who emerged once he got to college. He was offered a scholarship first by Iowa and Iowa State in 2016, then by a who's who of college football, including Georgia, Ohio State, Notre Dame, and Oregon. He was a four-star prospect regarded as the third-best dual-threat quarterback in the class of 2019. He passed for 24 touchdowns and rushed for 25 in his senior year at Lewis Central. I remember him being super competitive, fired up, and ready to go, McGinn said. Duggan simply ran into a better team. He completed 11 of 18 passes for 147 yards and a touchdown against the Saints and rushed 11 times for just 31 yards. He also had a receiving touchdown on a reverse pass. But Xavier's defense kept Duggan boxed in for much of the game and left the rest to its own offense. Current Iowa defensive back Quinn Schulte rushed for 152 yards and three touchdowns, and Braden Stovey rushed for 94. The Saints scored a lot of points and ate a lot of clock. We just couldn't get our defense off the field, Lewis Central coach Jim Duggan said after the game. Our goal was not to let him have the ball if we could, O'Connell said. The Saints got good use out of their scout team in the day leading up to the win over Lewis Central. Xavier's coaches and players spoke highly of Max Duggan then and still do. I know he'd be successful, O'Connell said. You can tell that about certain kids. It was how he handled himself and how he threw the ball. But nobody knows the path they'll take. TCU was a good school for him. They brought him along, and here he is. I remember when we learned we were playing him, I said he's going to win the Heisman, said McGinn, who plays baseball at Indiana Tech in Fort Wayne. It wasn't until we started preparing for that game that we found out he was the real deal. Duggan was the Heisman runner-up to USC quarterback Caleb Williams. Duggan has passed for 32 touchdowns and 3,546 yards this season for the 13-1 Horned Frogs and has rushed for 461 yards and eight scores. I think it's awesome, O'Connell said. It's incredible the things he's been able to do. It's a great thing for an Iowa kid to be able to excel at that level. I would like to think maybe we helped him a little bit because you learn from your disappointments. He's sure done that. And Mike Loss writes again about college basketball. The Hawkeyes face a grinder of a game. Rutgers has conference's best defense, buoyed by ball-stealing guards. It's early, but Rutgers is a contender for the Big Ten Men's Basketball Championship until proven otherwise. Iowa must be a lot more than chopped liver if it is to leave Jersey Mike's Arena, 11 a.m. BTN, with a victory today in Piscataway, New Jersey. The Hawkeyes, 9-6 overall, 1-3 in the Big Ten, are facing a team that is 3-1 in the Big Ten with wins over Ohio State, Maryland, and at number one, Purdue. It is a veteran club that has been a defensive dynamo. Entering Saturday's games, the Scarlet Knights, 11-4 overall, were third nationally in three-point defensive percentage, 0.257, fourth in scoring defense, 54.9 points per game, 
and fifth in field goal percentage defense, .366. They lead the Big Ten in turnover margin and steals per game. They play really hard, they have size, they compete, they're connected, Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey said. It helps that they have Cliff Omuri. He's a nice goaltender, a rim protector. Omuri, Omuri is a six foot eleven junior who averages 14.1 points, 10 rebounds, and almost two blocks per game. What also has helped is a junior guard pulled out of the transfer portal via the Patriot League. Cam Spencer left Loyola, Maryland for Jersey and has fit in magnificently. He averages 12.9 points and made what proved to be a game-winning three-pointer in the Knights' 65-64 win Monday at Purdue. Fifth-year Rutgers guard Caleb McConnell is the reigning Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year and League Steals leader. As of Saturday morning, Spencer led his teammates and the rest of the conference in steals with 2.6 per game. Oh, he also has made 44.3%, or 31 of 70 of his three-point tries. So what will we get in this game? Something like Rutgers' 48-46 win over the Hawkeyes at Jersey Mike's last January, or something resembling Iowa's 84-74 victory over the Scarlet Knights in March's Big Ten tourney. Iowa is fresh off a 91-89 home win over Indiana on Thursday. The Hawkeyes would love to set a similar pace in this game. Every game is a different flow to it, McCaffrey said. You've got to grind it offensively to score against them, but we're still going to run. Turning to the Iowa Today and a story under the heading, What They're Thinking, Roll Behind the Scenes, Intimacy Choreographer. Theater Job Finds a Foothold in Wake of Me Too Movement by Diana Nolan of the Gazette. Carrie Posdall, 45, of Cedar Rapids, is leading the change in the way local theater troops embrace emotional and physical contact, reactions and boundaries on stage and off. With 66 hours of training, she has offered her expertise as an intimacy director or choreographer to 27 productions so far, beginning with Theater Cedar Rapids productions of Bright Star and Kinky Boots in the 21-22 season. On through the recent Meet Me in St. Louis and the upcoming Cabaret. Largely through word of mouth, she also has worked with Mirrorbox Theater, Cedar Rapids Opera, Coe College, and Kirkwood Community College in Cedar Rapids, City Circle Theater Company in Coralville, Iowa City Community Theater, Riverside, and Dreamwell Theaters in Iowa City, Cornell College in Mount Vernon, and the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls. Farther afield, a college friend has asked her to collaborate on an upcoming production of August Osage County in Forest City. She even has directed herself in Theater Cedar Rapids' recent production of Misery, in which she played a mentally unstable, obsessed fan holding a best-selling romance writer hostage while treating his grave injuries from a snowy Colorado car crash. Posdall said it was rough to choreograph herself, but we're all kind of learning around here, too. She gave her notes to stage manager Kelly Shriver and had her run the vulnerability practice. That's the thing that I run actors through so they learn to be more comfortable with each other and more vulnerable on stage because we all tend to want to protect our soft middle bits and stuff on stage, Postal said. One of the things they worked on was a technique known as de-rolling, where actors work to separate themselves from the characters they're playing, important with emotionally charged roles. In another personal twist, she'll soon be working with her husband, Aaron Postal, who will be kissing two women in TCR's spring production of The Play That Goes Wrong. So that'll be fun for everybody, she said with a laugh. Humor aside, her work is serious business. A Dubuque native who studied theater at Simpson College in Indianola, she lived and worked in theater for 10 years in Chicago and met her now husband. They eventually moved back to Dubuque for a couple of years. Employment opportunities brought them to Cedar Rapids nearly six years ago. She now works as a registered corporate coach for Empower Retirement using some of the same skills she employs in theater. To enhance her, enhance her theater coaching, she also is certified as an artistic mental health practitioner and in mental health first aid. She said both enabled her to assist cast and crew members who may need to come down from a particularly grueling scene or moment that triggers their fight-or-flight response. 
She uses a sliding scale fee for her services from $750 for a play in which she's heavily involved to $200 or $300 if she's just coming in for one night or working on a smaller show. She also has training in conflict mediation and conflict resolution. Question, so what does being an intimacy choreographer or director entail? Answer, I am there to be an advocate for the actors. On one hand, I'm there to make sure that we are establishing boundaries for them and they are able to do their work safely, knowing that they're being heard. Having those boundaries established actually makes people feel a lot freer than if it's a free-for-all. People don't really know what they can do and what they can't, so they feel a lot freer when we establish boundaries. We establish neutral language or desexualized language that we use when talking about these moments on stage that are usually physically intimate. I also help with scenes that are more emotionally charged, a lot more sensitive topics that can be activating for people to act out. Question, how did all this arise? Is it an outcropping of the Me Too movement? Answer, actually, there have been a lot of theater makers that have been doing this work for a long time. A lot of them were women of color who've been doing this work for a really long time. But as far as it becoming an actual job, that's really only been maybe six years where these people realized, hey, this is an opportunity for us. It didn't really solidify until after Me Too kind of blew up in 2017. The first time that I learned about it was in a New York Times article about Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune that was starring Michael Shannon and Audra McDonald. She asked for an intimacy choreographer, and that was the first time that Broadway ever had one. That blew my mind when I was reading because I knew that we didn't have that in regular theater in smaller venues. I guess I knew it wasn't really a theater thing, but to know that it was also not a thing for movies either. either. I just always assumed, especially considering how intense those scenes are in movies, that there was something more structured behind it, but there hasn't been. And so I was like, this is really fascinating. And when you really look, especially in the best practices workshopping, you really start talking about it. It doesn't make sense that there has not been a choreographer for this, like there's a choreographer for fighting, because it's the same kind of thing. However, she discovered that classes and workshops would take away from her full-time job, home, and young family, and would be cost-prohibitive, so she shelved the notion until the pandemic shutdown when theatrical intimacy educators offered training online. I started taking everything I could, basically. Question, what do you help actors with? I have a feeling it's more than just a big kissing scene. Answer, yes, usually it is, so I work with directors to figure out what type of involvement they want me to have. Some directors want me to do the whole thing. They don't really want to know, just, here's the story we're telling, you choreograph this bit and go with it. I trust you. Some people know what they want to see. They just would like me to help facilitate it. And so I kind of work that way, depending on what works best for the director. And then I help the actors understand that they can say no, because for such a long time, the idea was when you walk into the room, you're consenting. That's not really the best way to go about it. I work to make sure they feel like they are human beings who are allowed to have feelings and it's not going to blackball them for the industry if they want to say no to this one thing in particular. I'm there to help them figure out what their boundaries are because a lot of times they've never considered it. Then they share those with their acting partner and they also know that their boundaries are perfect right where they are and they can change at any time. Question, how do you work during the course of a rehearsal? Answer, I talk to the director to find out what's the story and I ask the actors too, what story are we telling in this moment? And let's tell it. How are we going to communicate that? Work through the touch and the eye contact. Because you can really enrich the story if you use these moments of touch and intimacy, even if they're not making out. If you choreograph it with the right amount of beats in it and eye contact and where your destination is for your hands, where are you making contact and where are you not making contact on purpose? Where are you opening distance and closing distance to each other? If you pay attention to that and actually choreograph that, you can enrich the story so much more than just making those moments, moments just to get through, like you're ripping off a band-aid, which is what happens. And that can also take people out of the story when you could all of a sudden see how uncomfortable the actors are as people instead of watching the characters have a moment. 
And finally today, the Time Machine section, a look back at the people, places, and events in eastern Iowa, printing the Gazette. From a hand-fed press to 386-ton behemoth, machines put words on paper for 140 years, by Diane Fan and Langton, correspondent. The Gazette notes its 140th anniversary of continuous publication on January 10th, a milestone that also marks the 14 decades of owning and operating the large machines, often the newest and biggest to be had, that have printed the newspaper and others as well. When Illinois newspapermen Elbridge Otis and Lucian Post printed the first Evening Gazette on January 10, 1883, it came off a four-page, cylinder-type, hand-fed flatbed press located at 69 First Avenue East. In March, an essential piece of equipment, a chamber folding machine, was added. It folded papers as fast as they come from the press. It is the only folding machine in this part of the state and consequently is something of a curiosity. At the time, the Gazette cost three cents a day, 15 cents a week, 50 cents a month. The paper started off with 386 subscribers in Cedar Rapids, which had a population just over 10,000 at the time. It was one of 11 newspapers, most of them weeklies, in the city. Six months after starting the newspaper, Otis announced he was returning to Illinois because he'd been unable to sell his property there. Post continued running the paper and in March 1884 announced he was selling three-fifths interest in the Evening Gazette to Fred W. Fox and Clarence L. Miller. Three months later, Post sold his remaining shares to the two and went to work for the government printing office in Washington, D.C. Miller, as president and treasurer, took care of the business end of the enterprise. Fox, vice president and secretary, was in charge of news, editorial, and advertising. Fox wrote that he'd actually tried to buy a newspaper or start a new one in Cedar Rapids in 1879, but his partner in that venture, Herbert Farrell of Iowa City, went to work for the New York Tribune and the deal fell through. By the end of the new owner's first year, circulation had increased to more than 1,300, with a third of those subscribers living in Marion, Anamosa, Springville, and other surrounding cities. In the fall of 1885, the Evening Gazette office moved to the first floor and basement of 58 First Avenue East. In 1888, it moved into its elegant new home at 8587 First Avenue Southeast, where the Cedar Rapids City Hall now stands. In 1892, the paper bought a Colombian model duplex web-perfecting press, which could print 4,000 papers per hour, cut, pasted, folded, and counted, ready for delivery. The paper promised in its March 11th edition. The newspaper ran a drawing of the new press on December 31, 1892, labeling it the Gazette's Great Printing Press. It was first in a series of duplex printing presses the newspaper would buy. In December 1893, the duplex press blew a balance wheel, wrecking the press engine. A new engine was put in place, but the next day a cylinder ink distributor broke, again delaying the paper by more than four hours, with carriers delivering the afternoon paper at 9 or 10 that night. By 1897, the Gazette's circulation was over 9,500. The press started at 3.15 p.m. In December 1903, a new duplex press was installed just in time to print the paper's 108-page 21st anniversary edition January 9th. It was the largest and most expensive printing job ever produced in Iowa. Although it cost 20 cents a copy to print, the Evening Gazette sold the special edition for 10 cents. But even the new press proved inadequate in the face of the paper's growth. In April 1909, another duplex press was installed that could print a 20-page paper. That press lasted until 1925, when a new press was installed in the Evening Gazette's new building at 3rd Avenue and 5th Street Southeast. This one was a low-construction, sextuple press that could print up to 48 pages and print 60,000 12-page newspapers in an hour's time. In 1952, a six-unit Goss press was installed in a new wing of the Gazette building that also included room for the composing, stereotyping, and circulation departments. The next press, a Goss Metro Offset Press, was installed in 1977 as the newspaper moved from hot type to cold type production. 
The Gazette's last press was a giant Goss Universal 70 press, the only one of its kind in the United States when it was installed in 1999 at 4700 Bowling Street Southwest. The new business entity, Color Web Printers, printed the Gazette and other daily newspapers, plus 3 million Sunday comics for King Syndicate. Color Web Printers closed in 2021 after commercial accounts dried up, printing its last Gazette on August 24th. The 386-ton press, which could print up to 77,000 papers an hour, was dismantled and sold to Sound Publishing in the Pacific Northwest. The Gazette now is printed in Des Moines. And that brings me to the end of the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 8th, 2023. And the Gazette being printed in Des Moines is possibly why I don't get it first thing in the morning. But thank you to the newspaper carrier who brings it to, to me in a timely fashion so that I can read it to you. I have been your reader, Sharon Feldudo, reading to you from my kitchen table in Coralville. Remember that you can access a recording of this or any Iris recording anytime on our website, iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.